Hello everyone, welcome to another episode of the Handgun World Podcast. I'm Bob Main. I carry a gun because I can't carry a cop. This is a practical show done by a very practical guy, and that is me. Today's Sunday, March 6th, 2022. I'm just your everyday guy talking about self-defense, the Second Amendment, firearms, and I talk about other subjects as well on this show. In fact, I have some other subjects that I'll be talking about towards the end of this episode. Remember, this show is brought to you by Keepers Concealment, the leading authorities on appendix carry and appendix carry holster. Spencer Keepers has been a guest many times. I'll be having him on the show again very soon. And they are also affiliates of CCW Safe, the best legal protection that you need when you carry a firearm. You can find the links in the show notes and get a 10% discount using the coupon code KC10OFF at CCW Safe. So let me get right into it. Last week I did a question and answer session. And I was not able to get through all of the questions. I had a lot of them. So here's part two of questions and answers. So one of my friends, Tom, he sent a question. By the way, these questions all came through Facebook. I put a post out there asking for people. But if you want to send me a question through email, Facebook, however you want, that's fine. You can email me, handgunworld at gmail.com. If you want to call into the show, you can call 210-646-1727. 210-646-1727. So Tom asks a great question. Does competitive shooting really enhance our chances of surviving an armed incident? Good question. Competitive shooting. You know, it seems to always have been controversial for some people. I don't know why, um, because there's a lot of great things about competitive shooting. Let me answer Tom's question and then tell you why I answered it this way. The simple answer to Tom's question, in my opinion, is yes. Yes, competitive shooting can enhance your chance of surviving an armed incident. Now, here's why. I'm going to first of all say I do not believe that competitive shooting is all that you need to learn. It's not everything. You know, you you can't say, well, I'm a good, great competitive shooter, so I promise I'm going to prevail in a self-defense situation. It's not the end-all, be-all. It's not really even training. I guess parts of it can be training, but most of it is not, not self-defense training. But here's the positive aspects of competitive shooting. I believe it's like any other competition. Whether you play competitive golf, whether you play competitive football, baseball, basketball, 
whatever. You develop skills that you need to know. For example, in shooting, okay, one of the one of the ways to be the most successful shooter, competitive shooter that you can be, to succeed in competitive shooting, you've got to be able to draw fast and put two to four rounds on the first target. Now, what is wrong with that? What's wrong with perfecting your skills so that you can draw quickly and put a couple rounds on target right away, fast? I've seen competitive matches and stages. I've, I've been to them. I've participated. And I've seen them lost by a half a second, quarter of a second. The difference between first place and second place, a quarter of a second, for example. Okay? It's, I think a, a gunfight is very similar to that. Last week, I talked about uh, Dave, who sent in a question about John Correa's reaction theory and I'm going to talk about that a little bit later in this episode too and that you need to have a draw of 0.6 seconds if the bad guy has his gun on you or something like that I covered it last week I'm going to cover it again because Dave has some more to say about that and Dave's point he was echoing John Korea that depending on what the bad guy does he could give you more time depending on what where how he's moving where he's looking what's happening but you have to have a good fast draw. When I say more time, maybe he gives you 1.5 seconds max. That's it. Think about that. 1.5 seconds. How many of you can draw your pistol and get rounds on target, get two to three rounds on target in 1.5 seconds? You know, if you're a good competitive shooter and you really advance you, you may be able to do that. You may be able to get it under 1.5 seconds. In fact, you probably should be able to in less than 1.5 seconds to be a good competitive shooter. So that's one of the skills that you learn, which I think is a very important skill. How many of you would agree? In fact, it's probably the most important skill. In competitive shooting, you also have to have good marksmanship. What's wrong with that? What's, what's wrong? What's wrong with shooting fast and accurately? What's wrong with shooting fast and accurately? That's what you learn to do in competitive shooting. And I think in a self-defense encounter, now I've never been in one. I'm going to go ahead and I'm going to put that disclaimer out there. I know a lot of people who have been in gunfights. My good friend... And my uh, business partner uh, in the Shooters Club effort that we do, Ben Branham, he's been in 11 gunfights in his military career. I don't believe he's been in any civilian self-defense situations. But I think most people who have been in that situation will tell you being able to draw your gun and shoot fast and accurately is greatly important even with a rifle same thing being able to deploy your rifle and shoot fast and accurately is a good thing how how could it not be a good thing also in competition skills in competition matches when you increase your competitive skills you also learn to move and shoot you learn to shoot on the move you learn to move to a different position a different shooting position and shoot from that position instead of where you started well 
that seems to me like that would really help in a self-defense situation also. Wouldn't it? Wouldn't it help if, if you had good skills to be able to shoot on the move while you're getting away from the threat? While you're maybe moving to another position that's safer and that has cover or concealment? So you can move to that other position. You can get yourself out of the way. You can get your kids out of the way. You can get your spouse out of the way. You can get the good friend that you were with out of the way and move yourself and move them to a better position to where if you need to use your gun, it might be more advantageous for you. You learn that stuff in competition. You learn that, especially shooting on the move. And some stages, you got to be in three or four different positions three or four different shooting boxes, okay? And you're shooting at different angles. You're shooting at different uh, targets. Some of the targets have different colors. Some of the targets have areas where you can't shoot them called no-shoot areas. Some of the targets are absolute no-shoot targets. So they simulate innocent people. And we don't want to shoot those, okay? So, yeah, I think there are a lot of skills in competition, Tom, that can really be advantageous. And it's always annoyed me. It's always bothered me and frustrated me when people say, oh, don't become a competitive shooter. It'll get you killed on the streets. That's baloney. That's garbage. How many of you know of a situation where a competition shooter got killed on the street because they were a competition shooter? I wouldn't want to be in a gunfight up against some of the top level competitors because I've seen how good they are. I've seen how quickly they can draw and fire two to three, maybe even four rounds. It's unbelievable how fast they can do that. I wouldn't want to be up against that. So my goal is to try to make myself as good or almost as good as they are so I can develop those skills. I think that's a great asset. You know, I think most of the people who put down competitive shooting, they do it because because they're not a good competitive shooter. Right? They can't do it. So the natural tendency when somebody can't do something, ah, they trash it. They put it down. They make fun of it. They make light of it. Because they can't do it. So it's, it's harder to raise their skill level to the same skill level as good competitive shooters. So that's the hard part. That's the part that takes work and money. And so instead of doing that, instead of putting the time in and putting the work in, what do they do? They trash it. They talk bad about it. They say things like, oh, don't do that. It'll get you killed in the streets. You know, you don't learn anything. All you're doing is just putting holes in paper or shooting steel plates. Well, I completely disagree because... I think the skills that you can practice in competitive shooting can very much help you in a gunfight. Now, I said it's not the end-all, be-all. It's not the only thing you need to do. You do, you do need to learn defensive tactics. You need to learn de-escalation tactics. You need to know when to shoot, how to pick your time to defend yourself. Again, your firearm's the last resort, folks. It's the last resort so have you de-escalated have you used less than lethal 
weapons like pepper spray for example okay if you've tried all that stuff and you still cannot get out of a life-threatening situation then it's time to go to your firearm and get yourself out of that situation that's my belief and I think that if you've done all that stuff and and you've justified it and you feel like you could justify it in court as to why you did what you did and and think about something you know handguns are not the most powerful guns that we can use so handguns will not always instantly stop somebody so don't think if you're using your handgun to defend yourself don't think that the person's automatically going to stop as a matter of fact probably a little over 80 percent of people who are shot with a handgun survive and they live so it's not like you're instantly going to kill somebody either you know now if i've always said if the bad guy happens to die while you're stopping him from killing you or causing grave bodily harm if if that happens well then it happened and he picked the wrong thing to do and he picked the wrong person but that's not your intent your intent is to make him stop what he's doing and stop right now but because handguns because shots with a handgun are survivable highly survivable it may not result in the bad guy expiring but it but it, it hopefully your goal is to make the result that he stops what he's doing and that you get to go home safe you get to continue to live your life and you stop the bad guy from taking yours so these are great questions but tom i really think that there are some excellent competitive shooting skills that you learn when you compete like an idpa or uspsa or any other personal protection handgun or even rifle and carbine matches yes i i definitely think that it can enhance your chance of surviving an armed incident okay another question that was asked i'm going to move on now when budgeting for training, would you consider Chuck Haggard's managing unknown contacts? I would, yes. I've met Chuck Haggard at Rangemaster Tactical Conference, one of the years when it was held up in Arkansas. Uh, and I met Chuck. Matter of fact, I took Chuck Haggard's class on shooting small guns. Chuck did a class on shooting pocket guns tiny guns little 380s and pocket revolvers what a fantastic class that was it was a very short class but oh man did i learn a lot i i had been shooting little small guns and little 380s and and revolvers for a very long time and i learned from chuck haggard so i would budget any if you could if you could go train with mr haggard i would do it based on my experience taking one of his classes and of course his uh, reputation in the firearms industry is stellar so yeah dave i would say uh, managing unknown contacts i've heard about that class i've not had a chance to take it but that's what you're doing you're managing what's happening around you 
and and you're managing your reaction and maybe even their reaction that's going on around you when you're in a uh, really tough situation. I would definitely say budget that. I would say, Dave, you know, the answer is take as much training as you can afford. Budget what you can afford and go do it. And maybe all you can afford right now is to go to a competition match. Go do it for the reasons I explained a few minutes earlier. But if you can take a class and uh, Chuck's coming near you or many of the others, TACCON is great. The Range Master Tactical Conference. Uh, take a class from Tom Givens. Take a class from one of the Suarez International instructors. Take training, folks. You, you need to learn about not only about tactics and things, but about your gun. You know, the guns and the equipment that you use, it, it's a really big deal. You need to learn about them. And you might think I'm talking silly right now. You might say, well, come on, Bob, I have guns I've owned for 20 years. I know about them. That's not what I'm talking about. What I'm talking about is, how do you, do you know how that gun is going to perform in a high-stress situation? Have you ever put that gun, have you ever used it in a high-stress situation? You know what a high-stress situation is? Go take a self-defense class. Go to a competition match. That's high-stress or at least higher stress than what you might be used to. You might be used to just going to the range and putting holes in paper and turning dollars into noise. That's what a lot of people do at public ranges. You know that? They turn dollars into noise. What I mean by that is they spend a lot of dollars on the ammo and the firearms and they turn it into noise when they're bang, bang, bang and putting holes in paper at seven yards. That's okay if you just want to practice basic marksmanship, but that's not going to get you to where you need to be if you're going to have to use your firearm in self-defense. It just won't. Okay, now I want to back up a little bit. A question I covered a little bit last week, and I'm going to talk a little bit more about it this week. Dave asked me about uh, John Correa's active self-protection, where he talks about reaction times. And that you may have like a .60 seconds, less than, you know, less than a second time from draw to first shot. Uh, and depending on what the bad guy does, you might have one second. You might have a, a second and a half. You might have as many as two seconds. And Dave asked about what do I, I think of all that. And uh, then Scott chimed in and said this is based on the theory that one shot will instantly stop an aggressor, which is unlikely. The real issue is how much time does it take to make the bad guy stop their actions. See, Scott made a great point there. A great point. Now, I'm not taking anything away from what John Correa does at his very popular Active Self-Protection YouTube channel. And also, he puts on great classes. John Correa's work is incredible. His work is incredible. I don't care for him too much as a person, but his work is incredible. So, I pay attention to what he does with firearms and what he says and what he analyzes and what he teaches us. Um, I've had some interaction personally with him that has not been very good and he blocked me from his Facebook page just because of some small comments I made that I think rustled his feathers a little bit. You know, in this business, folks, you got to have a thick skin. 
you got to have a really thick skin. And I think you need to really be careful with the relationships that you have, especially within the industry. I'm talking about the firearms industry. A lot of us have big mouths. A lot of us have podcasts and shows and YouTube channels. And we, we say what we think. But, you know, I've always tried to maintain a real good relationship the best that I can. And I've always tried to treat people with the respect. But I also, I also know you have to have a thick skin in this business. I've been criticized many times, folks. I've received very bad emails and, and social media comments. And they, were, they consisted of comments I did not deserve. I didn't do anything to deserve them. But, you know, I blow that stuff off and I go right by it and I ignore it. And I maybe think about it for a couple of hours and then I move on. That's it. Because I have a job to do. And that is to share my thoughts, my experiences, and opinions with you, the listener. And you, the listener, are the most important. And I don't want to lose any listeners or anything. But you got to have a thick skin. You can't let things, you can't let little things bother you. I'm telling you what, in media like I am right now, you know, in Second Amendment media or any media or any kind of a public forum, you surely cannot let little things bother you. And uh, it's just not, it's not a good idea to do that. Um, because you're, you're going to, eventually that's going to come back to bite you in the butt. But I, but I really expect, uh, really respect John's work and his, his analysis and his teaching is spot on. So Dave, uh, it's, it's really good that you brought that up. And, but Scott's point's very good, that, that it's based on the theory that one shot will instantly stop an aggressor. And it won't. Most likely it's not. Most likely it's not. That's why I practice the step-up drill. The step-up drill is kind of one that I created or I kind of I created a different version of somebody else's drill. And I test how quickly can I draw and make one shot, and then how quickly can I draw and make two shots, and how quickly three shots, and how quickly four shots, how quickly five shots. Because I think all of that is important. As Scott says, you might have to put as many rounds on the bad guy as you prop as you possibly can and it, it it's likely going to take more than one round don't believe the hogwash that you see people put on the internet oh i i was able to stop someone with one round of 45 acp give me a break you know, my 357 Magnum will put down anything with one shot. Well, maybe it will. And likely it won't. Same with your big giant 45 ACP flying ashtray rounds. You know, it, it, it might put down the bad guy with one shot. And it might not. There have been a lot of bad guys that have survived far more than one shot with a 45 ACP. That was a cop in Illinois. I did a show about him. I did not get a chance to interview him, but he interviewed on the Pro Arms podcast back when Masada Yub and Gail Pepin were doing that show. And he shot a bad guy multiple times with a 45 ACP and ran out of ammo and the bad guy was still going. 
So I believe that police officer now carries a 9mm so that he can carry as many rounds as he possibly can on his person. I realize that you and me and probably 90% of the people listening to this show, we are not active duty police officers. Now, I do have active, active duty police officers who listen. And let me give a big shout out to all of them. I know they listen because they've told me so. Even from other countries, I have people listening. Uh, and law enforcement from other countries listen to me. Uh, for most of us, I would bet that most of us are not active duty law enforcement. So we're probably not going to be chasing down bad guys to arrest them, apprehend them, and get them off the street. That's not what our role is likely to be. But we can take a lesson, I believe, from those who are doing that. And that lesson is, especially, what if you have more than one bad guy that is after you? What if you got more than one, and they're both tough as nails? One shot, even if you can get that one shot into them in less than a second, it may not stop them. So how quickly can you follow up with more shots, with more rounds? How quickly can you do that? Several years ago, <clears throat> excuse me, several years ago, I had John Hottaway on my show. And uh, John, John made for some great interviews with me. We put out some really good stuff. But there was one thing, one thing he said that really irritated me that I thought was uncalled for. And... I was talking about I prefer 9mm because 9mm allows me to shoot faster and and shoot follow-up shots faster. And John said, well, if that was most important, we'd all be carrying 22s. You know, and that's that's a bunch of hogwash. That's kind of a straw man argument right there. I'm not suggesting that we all carry 22s because the follow-up shots are faster. I'm suggesting that 9mm is good enough and you can most likely shoot it faster than you can a 45. Now we're talking about defensive ammo. We're talking about stuff like Federal HST, Spear Gold Dots, Corbon ammo. Not bunny fart loads that somebody reloaded for competition. That's not what we're talking about. Because I've seen people shoot 45 ACP and the gun barely recoils. And we know why the gun barely, barely recoils. Because the loads are very light and they've modified the gun in a way that it'll run fine with the light loads so that they can shoot faster in competition. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about the everyday guy like you and me and the everyday gal walking down the street that has a gun and they're loaded up with self-defense ammunition. That's what I'm talking about. And I've shot a 1911 with 235 grain hollow points many times. I owned several 1911s back in the day and I could never shoot it faster then I can shoot my 9mm loaded up with Federal HST 124 grain or 147 grain hollow points. I could not shoot the 45 ACP any faster. And I tried many, many, many times. And I trained to do it. And it was not worth the bigger bullet to have less rounds in the gun. That's where I'm going with this. It's not worth the bigger bullet to have less rounds 
in the gun. I'll take the extra rounds. So Scott's point about Dave's comment is also a good one. Dave's comment's great because you do have to be proficient at drawing and putting the first shots on target, which is something that I like to practice a lot. But Scott's comment is also very good. How quickly can you make the follow-up shots? How quickly can you assess what has happened and decide whether you need to keep defending yourself or not? Vitally important. Okay, time to shift gears. And the last thing I want to discuss on this show today is not really a question that came in from a listener, but it was actually a comment that I saw. So the comment I recently saw was not about the Second Amendment, but about the First. Now, if you love freedom like I love freedom, all amendments, all rights matter. All right, not just the Second Amendment. This show is primarily about the Second Amendment, but I believe in the entire Constitution. And I want to talk about the First Amendment. And, and I'm going to explain to you why I want to talk about it. But let me, let me share the First Amendment with you. I'm going to share the first part of it. Now, you know what? Let, let me just share the whole thing. Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion nor prohibiting the free exercise thereof, or abridging the freedom of speech or of the press or the right of the people to peaceably assemble and to petition the government for a redress of grievances. Okay, so now let me talk about the first part. Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion, nor prohibiting the free exercise thereof. The comment that I saw was something about uh, this is why we have separation of church and state. So I'd like to talk about that. I've read the Constitution several times. There is nothing in the Constitution that says there must be a separation of church and state. I think many people over the years have taken this First Amendment out of context because I'm going to give this to you one more time. It says that Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion. What are they saying? They're, they're limiting Congress. They're putting the handcuffs on Congress, the government, the federal government in particular. And they're saying that Congress should not prohibit the free exercise of religion and Congress should not establish any dominant religion okay some people think that separation of church and state is in the constitution it is not in the constitution and thomas jefferson wrote a letter to the danbury baptists back in the 1700s he responded to them because the baptists were afraid that they would be discriminated against because of their religion and that's why Thomas Jefferson said, therefore, I believe that there should be a wall of separation between church and state. And what he was assuring them is that they would not be discriminated against because of their religion. That was, if you go back and read that letter that Thomas Jefferson wrote, read the whole thing in its entirety. You can search and Google Thomas Jefferson's letter to the Danbury Baptists. And so people pull from that letter, it's not even a law, 
It's not even a congressional act. And it doesn't even say it in the First Amendment. They pull separation of church and state from that. That's not what it's about. It's telling the government, the federal government, specifically Congress, the lawmaking body, it's telling them hands off of people's religion. And you can't prohibit the free exercise of religion. Well, unfortunately, I think here in the United States of America, government is in a lot of ways prohibiting our free exercise of religion. I'm a Christian. I'm a devout Christian. And I'm not really, I don't really belong to any Christian denomination. I belong to a non-denominational Christian church, a Bible church. I believe 100% in the Word of God in the Holy Bible. And, and I, can, I can freely exercise that. The government cannot stop me from exercising that. But they also can't say, well, what Bob Main believes is the only um, religion that we're going to practice here in the United States. The government can't do that. That's what the First Amendment is doing. They're making the government keep their slimy hands off of people's religious beliefs. And you can believe whatever you want. You can believe in what you have the right, the freedom to believe in any religion that you want, even if people d- disagree with you. Even if I, as a Christian who believes in the Lord Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior, you know, I, even though I believe that, if other people don't believe that, well, that's their choice. And the government cannot say, you have to believe that. They also cannot say, the Congress also cannot pass a law of any kind that says, well, because of your religious practices, you, you must not do X, Y, Z. So in other words, if a state wants to ban abortion, for example, they have the right to do that. That doesn't infringe upon anybody's religious beliefs. If somebody has a religious belief that says that's wrong, and, and their government wants to go along with that, well, then they've got the right and the freedom to do that because our federal government cannot interfere. Okay, and that's... Or if a private entity wants to say, you know what, we're going to allow you to pray here on our premises. They should be allowed to do that. The government should not step in and say, uh-uh, no praying allowed. They can't do that. And it doesn't matter how you're going to pray or who you're going to pray to. You have the right in the United States of America to do that because the government cannot restrict the free exercise of religion. But we see it so much. We see it so much. Government stepping in in schools. Here's an example. Government interfering in schools telling the kids that they can't pray. There's an example right there of government infringing upon the free exercise of religion. The government should not be doing that. The school can't say, well, everybody must pray. If a kid does not want to pray, the school can't require them. But the school also should not and shall not prohibit those kids from praying from doing so. That's, that's what the separation of church and state really means here. Really means. A lot of people twist this and they use it and say, and try to 
prevent people from practicing their religion. That's not what this is all about. The First Amendment did not say people can't practice their religion. The First Amendment said the exact opposite. The government shall not prohibit the free exercise of their religion. Government should not try to stop people from practicing their religion. This is kind of a controversial topic, but I've done a lot of study on it. A lot of reading. I've read Thomas Jefferson's letter to the Danbury Baptists several times. You got to read that. You got to Google that. I'll try to put a link in the show notes so you can find that letter. It's online though. It's not too difficult. And over the years, it's been twisted by the Supreme Court, by politicians, by all kinds of people who have twisted this. See, I believe when it comes to the Second Amendment, for example, I believe you have a God-given right to life and self-defense. See, I believe you have a right to life. I'm in the right to life camp. I expand that, though. A lot of people who are right to life, who are pro-life, they're talking about the abortion argument. I'm talking about a lot more than that. I'm talking about you also have a right to defend your life that exists now. That's my pro-life stance. In addition, yes, I'm pro-life on abortion, but I'm also pro-life on self-defense. You have a right to life. And nobody else has a, a, a legal right to take it away from you. Nobody has the right to take your life away from you. Therefore, you have a legal right to defend it. And the government needs to keep their hands off of our God-given right to life. If God gave you life, that's his intent for you. And I believe you have a right to preserve it. Now, if God says it's your time and your life is over, then he's going to get his way. He's going to get his will. Then it's your time. But I also think that there's things that man does. Man has free will. And some men use their free will, men and women. Okay, I'm sorry. Some men and women use their free will in the wrong way. And they become violent and they become evil. And they want to kill other people. You know, I mean, and you, you can't allow that to happen to you. And you must defend that. So that's where the Second Amendment comes into play if we don't have a second amendment it, it, we're not going to have a strong people i mean you know vladimir putin also knows that most people in ukraine don't have a gun they don't have a firearm they don't have any ways to defend themselves they don't have a rifle they're 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 getting more now of course but dictators Evil, violent, terrible dictators like Vladimir Putin, what do they do? They go after the weak. They, they're predators on the weak, the unarmed, the weak, the people who are defenseless. Why? These dictators are cowards. They don't want all their people to be armed. They don't want all their people to have guns and be able to rise up and defend themselves. I think Putin and, and his military is finding that out the hard way. That the Ukraines are not, they're not going to stand down. They're not going to fold over and they're not going to lie down like little kittens. They're going to be fighting. They're going to be fighting like roaring lions. And, and we need to be that. We need to have a rifle be behind every blade of grass. 
Just like the Japanese general said, I forgot his name in World War II. Yamamoto, I believe. No, it wasn't Yamamoto. Was it? I don't know. But he feared that we should not go in and invade the United States because if we do that, there's going to be a rifle behind every blade of grass. And he, he didn't think that that was a good idea, and they didn't do that. Um, that. This is part of remaining free. This is part of the right to life. But please, let's not twist the First Amendment. The rest of the First Amendment is about the right of free speech and the right to peaceably assemble. But the writers of the Constitution, our founding fathers, they, what's the first thing that they addressed in the First Amendment? Religion. They, they, they addressed it right away. And they told the government to keep their stinky, slimy, dishonest hands off of restricting people's religious practices. If you think I'm wrong, I'd like to hear about it. I've done a lot of studying on this, but maybe I have missed something. I'm always an open-minded guy, so if I've missed something, please feel free to set me straight or add on to what I have said in any part of this episode, because I think that's a good thing. I think education from different people who know what they're talking about. Now, please don't send me comments and, and you know, make sure that you know what you're talking about. Don't just start spewing out talking points that you happen to believe in. If I've, if I've missed some actual facts, then, then set me straight. Handgunworld at gmail.com, 210-646-1727. Put a comment on Facebook because I post every show out on Facebook and Twitter. And I'd like to hear about it. Okay, that's it. I also want to remind you that this show is also brought to you by Concealment Solutions. They make, I think, the best outside the waistband Kydex holsters that are lightning fast and ultra concealable. Concealmentsolutions.com. The word handgun world gets you a 10% discount at concealmentsolutions.com. Remember, uh, you can support this show also by going to my Patreon page. I need supporters in addition to my two sponsors to keep this thing rolling. Many thank you to all my Patreon supporters, Shooters Club members. Ben Branham and I very much thank you. For several years, a lot of you have been watching all of our educational videos on the Shooters Club that Ben and I have produced. And you've been supporting us that way too. Thank you very much. I appreciate that. If you're not a member, you can join for $8 a month. You can become a Patreon member of mine for as little as $3 a month. $3 a month, less than the cost of a tank, of, uh, a gallon of gas. Oh, that's unfortunate, right? Less than the cost of a gallon of gas these days. Anyway, thanks for tuning in, folks. Remember, shoot straight, shoot safe, read your Bible every day. I'll talk to you next week. Good.